session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310 310- Four four one zero five five five. Let me get to the books of the week. The book for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is "The End of Trauma" by George A. Bonanno. The End of Trauma: How the New Science of Resilience is Changing How We Think About PTSD by George A. Bonanno. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying the last name right. We'll try to get it. Um, known by next Monday. Uh, but this book just came out last week, so I'm really, or maybe two weeks ago. Um, looking forward to reading it, uh, looking at some of the new research on PTSD and trauma. So uh, we'll read that and share it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. And this book has been out a couple of years, and I'd seen it, and it was one of those books I knew it would be good for me to read, and I'm glad I did. I'd read some other books on sleep, so I think that's what had put me off from reading this one. Um, but it's a very, very good book. I hope you'll check it out. Also, uh, I can mention he was on um, the Huberman podcast. I highly recommend that podcast in general, uh, but you can uh, check that out and hear um Dr. Huberman talking with Dr. Matthew Walker about sleep, but the book also obviously gets into a lot of research looking at how important sleep is. And before I get into the book itself and the details of it, I did want to just make some comments about this topic of sleep, which he talks about in the book. But this notion that we have of sleep as something that's not that important, or, you know, there's this adage of or line I'll sleep when I die meaning in a way that sleep is a waste of time that you can obviously if you're asleep you can't be quote unquote productive do things and so people will feel that it's a waste of time that we shouldn't do it also I've definitely been guilty of this myself bragging about how little sleep we need as a type of a sign of strength I don't need that much sleep I'm good on five hours of sleep Um, I could pull an all-nighter and I'm just fine. So we have a lot of ways that we try to show off about not needing sleep. And also we see it as a weakness to sleep a lot or even laziness if we're sleeping in or having too much or what seems like too much sleep uh, according to what other people think or what they might um, give their opinion as. And I think that's very unfortunate. He definitely does mention those things in the book. This mindset that we do have about sleep, oftentimes minimizing its importance, showing off that we don't need it that much or thinking we don't need it, shaming or making other people feel bad for sleeping in or getting more sleep, when really it is such a incredibly powerful tool we have in taking care of ourselves and really something that we can't ignore. 
so I, I think I know that for myself. I've mentioned uh, to people how I maybe don't need as much sleep or I can be good when I don't sleep as much. But I know really that's not true. And I, I think about it more clearly. And when you look at the research, it's undeniable. And I've even noticed things like when I'm doing the show, I obviously try to choose my words carefully and try to have words come to me easily if I can. And I've noticed that when I don't sleep enough or I sleep less the night before a show, I oftentimes will have a difference in how easily words will come to me. And you'll have that tip of the tongue experience where I can think, okay, there's a word I want to say, but it, it won't quite come to my head, which word exactly it is. And I have a feeling of that word, but I can't get it to come to me. So um, that's just one example of so many, and I'll get to more of them in the book of how even just our performance will be affected in many ways. And often in ways, it doesn't mean you'll do bad, but you can do better. And so that's one thing I'll also say, because people will give the argument, well, I do fine with the amount of sleep I have. And we oftentimes can get accustomed to something that might not be optimal, but we're just used to it. But if you sleep five hours a night and you're doing just fine, well, you might be doing just fine, but we also know that you'd be doing much better if you were getting more sleep, like eight hours of sleep. You would be doing even better than you know. And of course, not just on performance, as I mentioned, something like doing a show or doing your work, but when it comes to your health and every certain aspect or every particular aspect from physical to mental, emotional health, all get impacted by sleep. So uh, Matthew Walker, his uh, Twitter handle is Sleep Diplomat, which I think is actually quite humorous, but in a way he's promoting and trying to promote this notion of the importance of sleep, something that we so much underestimate individually as a society and all different levels of life. We see that we don't take ser sleep seriously enough. And so this book does a great job of showing the significance and the importance of getting enough sleep and that most of us don't get enough sleep. Something like two-thirds of people in industrialized countries do not get enough sleep or the recommended eight hours of sleep. So also the book talks about what sleep is and how it happens and things of that nature. And so if we look at how we become tired or sleepiness and our wakefulness, there's a few different uh, concepts or things to look at. So one is we have a circadian rhythm, and you maybe heard this term before, but the circadian rhythm is uh, the brain basically, or every uh, living being, they have a way that we almost keep track of time in a waking and sleep type of pattern that goes around 24 hours. Actually, ours is a little bit more, something like 24 hours and 13 minutes, 15 minutes, this circadian rhythm that even if we don't know or have no other um, inputs, so for example, every day we look at the time, we see the sun, we do different things, and that obviously can give us a uh, very clear idea of what time it is. But even if we were to take away all of those, as a few researchers did on themselves going into a dark cave, we find that people can still maintain an, an idea about what time it is in the day and have a wake and sleep cycle that still remains fairly what we consider regular uh, outside of just um, if we're given cues of when to sleep, it seems we can still find our way, so to speak. So we have the circadian rhythm, and actually part of the circadian rhythm involves 
releasing melatonin. Now, when most people hear melatonin, they think of the supplements now because so many people use melatonin as a sleep aid, but the body naturally produces melatonin. And the way that works is our circadian rhythm, as I mentioned, it's not quite 24 hours, but the presence of light and being exposed to light can refresh or recalibrate that circadian rhythm. And so when we are seeing light, especially sunlight, that's really where it's coming from, we then know that it's daytime. And when we have an absence of light, our body can start to think that it's getting close to nighttime and prepare itself for sleep. Now, one of the issues here and for modern day humans is that although the sun might go down, we are then exposed to lights in different ways. Um, lights, for example, in the room I'm in right now, and also lights from things like televisions and tablets and phones that can unfortunately trick our body into thinking that it's still daytime and reduce or delay the release of melatonin, which then actually would help prepare us for sleep. And so this itself can create a problem. One of the things he mentions is how we can be mindful of our exposure to light. So we have the circadian rhythm, which has this waking in the morning and then getting sleepy at night if we don't interfere with it. That's one aspect of getting ourselves ready for sleep or what affects our sleepful sleepiness and our wakefulness. Another process is uh, created by a neurotransmitter or chemical called adenosine. And so what adenosine basically is, is a byproduct that our brain cells produce in doing work or just by firing. So throughout the day, there is a buildup of adenosine, which when it binds to receptors in your brain, starts to signal that it's time for sleep or it makes you feel tired because it's like this buildup almost you can think like a debris from doing work. And after a long time, you need to clear out that debris. And when we sleep, this debris gets cleaned up. So when you wake up, if you essentially were to sleep long enough, all the adenosine essentially would be out of your brain and so it would feel ready to be awake. And this actually adenosine brings up one of the most common aids that people use to keep themselves awake and alert, one that I use um, more than once a day on most days, caffeine. So how caffeine works is that it blocks the adenosine. Essentially, it goes and sits in that receptor that the adenosine goes to, but doesn't create the same action. So it blocks adenosine from um, having that impact of making us feel sleepy. So in a way, it tricks you into thinking you're not that tired yet because you don't sense this buildup of adenosine in your brain. And so you stay more awake. Caffeine might also have some uh, effect, other effects being a stimulant on things like dopamine. But really, this is one of the main ways that it keeps us up. And the reason why you can have a caffeine crash is that so the, the caffeine molecules, they'll bond to these adenosine receptors. So you already have all this adenosine in your brain that it's being blocked. And then in that meantime that the, the caffeine is blocking those receptors, more adenosine is gonna build up. So once the caffeine finally is not there doing that blocking, you're gonna have even more of a cascade of this adenosine. So you'll feel very tired. And this is why you might then reach for some more caffeine to keep you awake, which unfortunately can create this negative cycle of 
sleeping poorly again that night and needing again or feeling you need caffeine the next day to keep you awake. And many of us are stuck in these types of unhealthy and in, in some ways, in some ways, unnatural cycles of not getting the right sleep or the right quality sleep or enough sleep. And because of that, feeling tired throughout the day and then doing things that are not good for our sleep to keep ourselves awake and vice versa. And the, the cycle continues. He mentions a quote from someone else, but it reminds me of a quote from Eric Fromm uh, in The Art of Loving, where he talks about how one of the problems of modern humans is we are half awake when it's time to sleep and then half asleep when it's time to be awake. So well, many people, when they're trying to sleep, they have a hard time. They're thinking about things, worrying about things. So they're half awake in a time when they would be trying to sleep. And then because of that, and because of other reasons, they could wake up the next day feeling very tired. And so now they're half asleep when they're trying to be awake. So the book, uh, he gets into these different factors that uh, try to explain how we sleep or what makes us become sleepy and fall asleep, which also does give us some lessons, as I mentioned, things like it could be good, uh, you know, the light that makes you think you're awake to actually get exposure to sunlight. And so you can get some of that benefit from lights, let's say in your home or bright lights, but actually the sunlight, even on a cloudy day, um, not to sound like the song, but that sunshine on a cloudy day can actually do more to reset your circadian rhythm or really make you feel like it's time to wake up more than light from inside your home. So actually it can be a, a quite a good thing to do to get some real sunlight in your morning to, to wake you up and get you going and really stimulate the brain and body to feel that it's time to be awake and time to start the day. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, limiting things like screen time and your access to blue lights, which unfortunately many of the lights that we have LEDs, for example, they are emitting a blue light, which will trick your body into thinking it's still daytime at some level and make it harder for you to fall asleep. So those are some of the basics of some how we fall asleep, what makes us uh, fall asleep, different aspects of that. But now in the next section, I'm going to get into the harsh reality of how important sleep is and the, the real harsh reality of how harmful it is when we don't get enough sleep on every aspect of our being. So we're going to continue the discussion on the book, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. After the commercial break, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Talking about the book, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And as I said, he gets into research showing how sleep benefits us in so many ways, every aspect of our health and our life. And of course, the absence of it or the absence of enough sleep leads to uh, harmful effects in all those same areas. And so to start one of the chapters, he has this kind of looking like an ad or a new, um, maybe an article or something where it says amazing breakthrough. Scientists have discovered a revolutionary new treatment that makes you live longer. It enhances your memory and makes you more creative. It makes you look more attractive. It keeps you slim and lowers food cravings. It protects you from cancer and dementia. It wards off colds and the flu. It lowers your risk of heart attacks and stroke, not to mention diabetes. You'll even feel happier, less depressed, and less anxious. 
are you interested? And so this amazing breakthrough that he's talking about, you probably could have guessed it, that he means sleep, because sleep does all of those things that he talks about in this ad-like uh, paragraph that sounds too good to be true. This is something we expect when we see an ad for a new product that promises you way more than it can deliver. But when it comes to sleep and what he mentions here, it does have all these positive impacts. And so that's what I've seen from this book and heard him talk. You can tell he really wants people to understand this, that sleep is so beneficial for us. And unfortunately, we so often take it for granted or take it too lightly and don't make sure we get enough sleep when it actually can benefit in these ways that people, of course, all would want for themselves. And so I can go through some of these. And as I mentioned, of course, the benefits are important to talk about. They can be motivating, but also it could be motivating to look at how harmful it is when we don't get enough sleep, as so many of us do not get. And I myself, I've taken sleep, I think, too lightly for lots of times in my life. Sometimes I've been better lately. I've been better than I was years ago. I was much worse and really thought of it as just a thing that you do, but not something that I would prioritize in any way. But reading this book definitely has re-motivated me to be more mindful and, and take my sleep more seriously. And I hope really that you, you will do the same. And I'll mention this again, because I think it's such an important point that we, we hear these things, but to really incorporated into our lives. But so this uh, chapter starts with this interesting ad for basically sleep. Uh, and then it gets into the benefits for things like memory. And so when you're trying to learn, it helps when you sleep both before to be well rested actually makes a difference in how well you can learn, but then also after. And so this was an interesting chapter for me when I was reading this about studying, they do lots of times research where they either sleep deprive people or do different tests to see how well people learn and how sleeping affects what they learn and how much they learn. Because I remember when I was in uh, at UCLA doing my undergraduate um, studies, I would pull all-nighters virtually every midterm and every final. So several times, uh, it was quarters at UCLA, so several times a term, I would be pulling all-nighters. And essentially, it was the way I would study for tests was I just knew I would do that. Now, I'll add partially, partially, I think this was not just to study more. There was a few other factors that led to me pulling all-nighters before every final. One was, uh, I think when I would sleep a few hours and wake up, you've probably had that experience where your eyes are stinging almost, I would feel worse if I slept like two hours. But the other, I think, driving force when I look back on it now was, before I was at UCLA, when I was at uh, community college at Santa Monica College, one time I remember it was a chemistry test and I really was preparing for it or I felt very prepared to get an A on this test. And I had those famous last words as I was studying of, let me just lie down for a few minutes. And so I went to my bed, lied down for what I thought would be a few minutes, probably turned into a few hours. I remember I woke up and had that panic feeling you can have when you sleep when you weren't planning to sleep and you don't know what time it is. And when I looked at the clock, it was already like 45 minutes into the exam and the whole class was about an hour and a half or hour, 15 minutes and I had a 30 minute drive or so. So I, I had to just not take the test. I remember thankfully you could drop a test in that class, but still 
it was pretty painful experience. And so from that, I think there's also that partial anxiety of sleeping through an exam that just made me feel more comfortable staying up all night. And so I would stay up the whole night till the morning. I saw many sunrises at the UCLA Powell Library and then go take the test and then go sleep uh, and crash. But that was pretty much the routine that I had accepted and I thought was good and it works. And reading this research, I can see that that's not at all the best way. Of course, the the negative, uh, harmful effects of just sleep deprivation is one thing, but even for learning, it's not good. Another factor, though, for myself was when I was cramming in this way, really I wasn't cramming in the sense that I hadn't studied the material and started studying the night before. I was actually, in my UCLA days, quite studious and would read everything beforehand, but the night before the exam, I would be reviewing. Because I do realize I learned a lot during my UCLA years and retained even things that I learned back then, which is now 15, 16, even more years ago. And I think that's because I had learned them and slept and done all of that. I didn't just cram the night before because what the research shows is that even for to begin with, when you don't sleep, you don't learn the material as well. But on top of that, you lose it much faster than if you sleep. And so what we can try to understand in a simplified way, and we always be careful when we use computer analogies for the brain because there are so many differences. But basically when you learn something, it goes to probably other regions too, but the hippocampus of the brain, it holds on to that memory. And then when you sleep, they can even see this happening, which is quite remarkable during non-REM sleep, non-rapid eye movement sleep, those first four stages of sleep, um, that essentially what's happening is information is being taken from almost like this hard drive or this, you know, the, I don't even know the computer analogies well enough, but moved into permanent storage in the neo, in the frontal lobe, in the cortex. So we see that the information is essentially being transferred into permanent memory, sometimes what's called consolidated, during the sleep that you do. So you need to have the sleep to allow for that process to happen. So they've even done research where it's not really about sleep deprivation, but to see, to see the benefits of sleep. They'll have people learn words and then, or do some kind of a learning task. And then 12 hours later, they're going to test them to see how well they learned it. Now, some people learn it in the morning and then take the test at night, having not slept in between. So let's say you studied at 10 in the morning, you take the test at 10 at night. Other people will learn it at 10 at night, let's say, and then sleep and then now take the test the following morning. And what they find is that the group that has slept far uh, outperforms the group that did not sleep. So we can see that sleeping has a huge beneficial impact on our learning. And so if you want to learn, you need to literally sleep on it. But also, as I mentioned, even sleeping before helps prepare you as well. So it helps greatly for our memory. Also, uh, it can make you more creative. That usually happens in our REM sleep, where this is where you have the more... Uh, abstract types of dreams that we can have. And so your brain is basically pulling together different things and associating things that might not do when it's consciously awake. And so there have been many scientific discoveries or 
artistic breakthroughs that happen during REM sleep, during dreaming. And so that's a very important element of our sleep as well, that we want to make sure we get enough of that REM sleep. Not only that, uh, Matthew Walker himself proposes a type of theory about REM sleep and about dreaming that essentially says that REM sleep and dreaming is like self-therapy in a way, because by studying the brain during REM sleep and seeing what people go through, it seems that people relive emotional experiences in their dreams, in the REM sleep, but it's a little bit devoid of the same emotional sting. So it appears that people can, in a way, by re-looking at the memory with a, a more calm, as far as their emotional reaction is not as intense, experience can then feel less intensely about the memory in the future or upon awakening or later on. So it's kind of like what happens in therapy at times is that people, of course, get emotional when they share painful memories, but at times having the therapist there and going through it in a different way can actually remove some of the sting associated with that same memory. And often people will say, well, what's the point? Even in therapy, I've heard this, or people talking about therapy. Well, I can't change the past, so what difference will it make talking about it? But I've always told them, and this type of research uh, kind of reinforces that idea, that no, we definitely can't change the events of the past, but we can definitely change the way you feel about the events of the past. That can and does change. And so people can probably remember themselves a very painful memory. Sometimes the emotion will still be there, but sometimes you can recall a very painful memory and you'll remember that it was painful, but you won't feel that same pain or feel almost any pain when you describe that same memory. And so his theory is that REM sleep actually and the dreaming that occurs there might serve this purpose uh, or have this function of reducing um, our emotional sting or that emotional pain that we have attached to certain memories, which is quite interesting. Hard to fully disprove something like that, but definitely um, he presents some research on, on his theory and how that can make sense. So in those ways, it helps with memory, learning, creativity, even has this emotional type of benefit. And then it has severe and significant impacts on our health from things like our heart to, as I mentioned, diabetes. He talks about uh, stroke, cardiovascular issues, not just heart attacks, all sorts of physical and health benefits. Also, your immune system, huge impacts on how your immune system responds. He wrote this book before COVID, but he talks about the flu vaccine and how people who slept better leading up to getting the vaccine and afterwards the body would respond better in producing antibodies and things of that sort. And so I was actually trying to remember, how did I sleep when I got the COVID vaccine? Um, and I think I slept okay, but something to think about. But yet another reminder, hopefully it's not just, well, let me sleep well because I'm going to get a vaccine this week, but that we would hopefully always keep that in mind, that we can uh, make sure we're getting enough sleep for all the benefits that it has. Uh, also looking at emotions, what they find, and you might have experienced this, I definitely have seen this in myself, is that when you don't get enough sleep, when you're underslept, or that's probably not a word, but you're not getting enough sleep, you will be more emotionally 
have more emotional lability, meaning your ups and downs will be more extreme. So you'll kind of get irritated more easily and get down more. And also things might get you more excited, which might sound good, but it's almost too much. It could be a little bit over the top. And so I've shared the story before of how uh, it's funny actually bringing these things together, but I pulled an all nighter, took an exam for college, and then after the exam, I went and bought a CD and it was the I Am Sam soundtrack, I remember. And then I got in the car and I played a song and I just started crying so much from the song. And it was a beautiful song and it was uh, Rufus Wainwright covering Across the Universe, which is a beautiful song. But I cried so much listening to the song on the drive home. And then I slept and then maybe the next day or whenever it was soon thereafter, I wanted to listen to the song again and I was like, oh, it's probably going to make me cry because I cried when I heard it last time and I didn't. I still thought it was a beautiful song and felt something, but I didn't feel that same intensity of emotion that moved me to tears because I had then gotten sleep and my emotions were a little bit more, um, less erratic, we can say. Now, I'm all about having emotional experiences, and I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of life is having these ups and downs that we can experience. But when we are sleep deprived, it's in a way that we don't feel very uh, in control or can feel out of control in a way that does not feel good. And as I mentioned, you also are going to be more irritable or get more upset easily and can be more emotionally reactive. We make worse decisions when we are not getting enough sleep. So that's something that obviously can be very costly in different ways. So you can get emotionally reactive. So you might yell more easily, get enraged more, snap at someone. So this can lead to arguments, fights, things that are not good for you and your family members. Or if you're married and you're underslept, well, that's going to happen. I'm keep using this word. I don't know if it even is one underslept. Um, that could happen. I'm actually thinking of new parents. Of course, they're not getting enough sleep and there's a stress of having a baby. So I'm sure those factors can contribute to even more arguments happening because they're both emotionally all over the place. So you've probably experienced this yourself or if you haven't, if you pay more attention to the type of sleep you're getting, how much you sleep and how you feel the next day, you likely will notice these patterns that you will be more up and down um, based on not getting enough sleep. So I do want to talk a bit more about some of the um, recommendations that Matthew Walker makes and some other uh, implications of not getting enough sleep and what we can think about, hopefully for ourselves, as I mentioned, I hope you will make some changes in your own routine and your own prioritization of getting enough sleep. But so I'll talk a bit more about the book and some other ideas, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So ending the discussion on the book, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And I wanted to actually talk a bit about sleeping aids or things that people take to help with sleep. I mentioned melatonin before. Uh, there's some, it's not really clear if the melatonin you take is going to help you in the way that you're hoping it will. And it's definitely not a sleeping a pill that'll make you fall asleep. But that being said, I wanted to talk about sleeping pills. Now, I think it's interesting the names medications get have a big impact on what we think about them. So you hear antidepressants, you think, well, 
that's going to definitely take your depression away. Anti-anxiety is one that I think is a tough one because most people think, well, if I have an anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, OCD, I'm going to get prescribed an anxiety medication. That would seem to make sense, an anti-anxiety medication. However, usually if you are dealing with one of those conditions, you're going to be prescribed an antidepressant for long-term use, anti-anxiety medication only is to be used short term most of the time. Unfortunately, it gets abused often and becomes very habit forming and can have negative effects. But I can see how some things, well, I have anxiety, I should take the anti-anxiety medication. That's kind of how we think about medication, especially in the Western model of uh, treating things as well. If you have a issue, you just take the pill that's anti that thing you have, blood pressure, anti-blood pressure medications or lowering blood pressure medications. And so you hear sleeping pill, you think if I have a sleeping problem, then I should take a sleeping pill. Now, as he talks about in the book, there's lots of reasons not to take a sleeping pill. First of all, they might help you fall asleep so if you weren't able to fall asleep well, you might fall asleep, but it doesn't mean you're going to get the quality of sleep that you need. And so this is something I've long heard about and he talks about in the book, that the time of sleep is not the only important factor. What's important is the quality of the sleep. So it's not just the quantity. And so when we take sleeping medications like sleeping pills, Ambien and those kinds of things, it's might help you fall asleep, but the type of sleep you're getting is not going to be as good. Also has other side effects. You might do things during the night, but uh, on top of that, you tend to wake up more groggy. And so it creates another one of those cycles where you're likely to take more caffeine throughout the day, which will make it harder for you to sleep again. And you might feel like you need even more of the pills or become more dependent on the medication. So it really is not a good way to deal with a sleep problem. So he, he clearly explains how he is not that he would say never take them. He, he tries to be open in how he shares his wisdom or advice, but he's very much against it based on the research that it can be harmful in so many ways, including that once you get off of the medication, you usually have a rebound effect and it actually can become harder to fall asleep again. So it's really something that makes you dependent on it, whether you get addicted to it in the clinical sense, but it tends to not really be beneficial and help you resolve a problem like insomnia if you're having a hard time sleeping. And so he much rather you look at the non-medicinal ways or the non-medication ways of dealing with a sleep issue. Some of those recommendations I will share at the end of talking about the book today. Um, also, another issue is we might, again, as I talked about, I think, in the first segment on how, well, I got some sleep, but I'm pretty good and I function well on sleep. We aren't good at recognizing our own deficits when it comes to performance and our sleep. So kind of like someone who maybe thinks they're okay to drive after they've drank a few and you can tell they're drunk. We all are that way essentially when it comes to a lot of things with our sleep uh, performance when it comes to sleep. So we think I'm okay. I'm not affected by the amount of sleep I've gotten. But when they do research, they find that it very much is true. And so he shares how something like 1.2 million accidents happen, car accidents happen in the U.S. every year that are related to sleep, not enough sleep, basically. And so drowsy driving, we hear of drunk driving, but drowsy driving and sleep deprived driving is very dangerous. 
And I would have to admit that I've done that many times in my life. First of all, um, maybe in just a sleep deprived, like I didn't get enough sleep. Of course, that can happen often. But other times I drove when I really had not gotten enough sleep over a period of nights. And I'm recognizing how dangerous that is and was and to be more mindful of that even we could think that there could be penalties for that it's a lot harder to prove sleepiness as it is for example blood alcohol level but it it could make sense to me that if you drive when you're extremely sleep deprived you are putting yourself and others in danger just like when you are drunk driving and that could sound extreme but when they look at the research showing how slow you can be to react and how likely you are to fall asleep or have a micro sleep, and a micro sleep could be enough, even if you're asleep for a second or two, that could be enough to get you totally in the wrong lane or onto oncoming traffic and tragically have an accident. So it's really eye-opening, I guess pun intended when you're talking about sleeping, but eye-opening to see how detrimental a lack of sleep, even in small amounts, can be to so many important functions that we have and things that we tend to take lightly. Most of us don't think, well, if I slept just a few hours less than normal last night, my driving is an issue, but clearly it isn't something we should take seriously. And so at the end of the book, he gets into different uh, recommendations. He have one big one that I'll mention here is when it comes to schools and start times. And this is something I've heard periodically People mention, well, you know, in adolescence, he does talk about the sleep phase gets a little bit later. So you maybe have noticed this, but teenagers, they will start to want to sleep later and sleep in more. And some of that is going on biologically. Their circadian rhythm is moving in that direction. But we see a school starting at 7 in the morning or 7.30 in the morning, and then kids getting ready way before that, or especially if they take the school bus, maybe way before that too, waking up at 5 or 5.30 in the morning every day, which again, we go to that mindset of, well, that's good and it builds discipline and they need to do that. But really we're looking at the biology and what's happening in their bodies and their brains, and we can see very clearly that this is unhealthy. It's not just about laziness or work ethic. We're talking about genuinely having a negative impact on their brain and body development. So I'm very much in favor of having later school start times. I know that it can shift a lot of uh, the ways that we do things and people try to align work and other issues with when they the kids go to school so i understand there can be logistical concerns but i think it's one that we should not take lightly that that children and and adolescents they need teenagers need to sleep in more than we let them and they're missing a lot of important sleep because of that so he talks about that issue also about how work and how we make people work and get up at certain times to go to work and it's become the norms and that could be unhealthy too, and we want to be be aware of that. So he does give some advice at the end of the book at an individual level of how we all should prioritize sleep and take our sleep more seriously than we probably do, but also in a larger scale as a society, how we need to be aware of the importance of sleep and how in this last century or so, we have become very good at doing something very bad, which is minimizing the importance of sleep and not giving people the time to do enough sleep or get enough sleep and thinking that it's somehow okay and we're paying the price in a variety of different ways. But I did want to also mention 
some of these healthy tips for sleep that he has here at the end of the book in the appendix, and they're coming from the National Institute of Health. And so uh, I'll go through these quickly. So there's 12 tips for sleep. The first one is stick to a sleep schedule. So go to bed and wake up at the same time each day. We are creatures of habit, and that can be helpful. As he says here, uh, you know, we tend to think of having an alarm for waking up, but we should also have an alarm for bedtime. When do you go to sleep? Because essentially, if you want to make sure you get enough sleep and you know what time you have to wake up, well, then you have to count backwards or work backwards. And so we can set a goal or a routine of sleeping at the same time every day. That can be very helpful. And so all of these are good for anyone, I should mention, but especially if you're dealing with a sleep issue, if you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or getting enough sleep in some way, before you go to all the pills, especially sleeping pills, but even other aids that I think people think is the first route, it's much more important to look at these non-medication and supplement ways rather than putting something into your body, seeing these natural ways that you can get better sleep. As I mentioned, sometimes sleeping aids, especially sleeping pills, might help you fall asleep. But one, they're going to give you a whole host of other issues. And two, the quality of sleep and going through the different stages and the way that you do might not be happening. So just because you fall asleep doesn't mean you're getting the sleep that you need. The second tip is exercise is great, but not too late in the day. So you don't want to exercise two to three hours before bedtime. You want to try to make sure it's before that. Um, Three is to avoid caffeine and nicotine. Uh, So I know I violate that one with the caffeine, but especially closer to sleep. And again, some people say, well, I can have an espresso at 10 p.m. and still fall asleep. And you might, but we know that the quality of your sleep again might be affected. So just falling asleep is not enough. So here, number three is avoid caffeine and nicotine. And number four is actually avoiding alcoholic drinks. This is another one of those myths. People say, well, it helps me relax, then I fall asleep. But actually, it's robbing you of your REM sleep when you drink too much and sleep. So it's actually, again, not allowing you to have the quality and the type of sleep and the different stages and phases of sleep that you need. So uh, tip four is to avoid alcoholic drinks, avoid large meals and beverages late at night. So if you have a big meal that can lead to indigestion, and then if you drink too much, even any not alcohol, but any kind of fluids, it might make you have to wake up to go to the bathroom. That also can disrupt your sleep. Um, number six is to be aware of medications that you take that can delay or disrupt your sleep. So you could talk to your doctor or check the side effects to see if that's happening. Number seven, don't take naps after 3 p.m. So this is especially true for people who are suffering with getting enough sleep or falling asleep at night, especially because when you take that nap, it's going to relieve some of the sleep pressure that you would naturally feel at night. So for example, the adenosine that I was talking about before, when you take that nap, some of it will be swept away and cleaned up. So when it comes time for you to actually go to sleep at an appropriate time, you won't feel as sleepy. And so you can create another one of these unhealthy cycles. Tip eight, relax before bed. So you want to try to unwind. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're creatures of habit and routine, and we've talked so much about expectations on the show about your brain and how you get ready for something. So if you create a routine, that can be very good to have that. I actually joke with uh, my brother Parham, who tries to have a routine about sleeping, and he's actually quite good at it. But it starts 
a couple hours before sleep, which can actually be the case. And especially with things like blue light, that's a good idea. But I joke with him that as soon as he wakes up, he starts preparing and doing his routine uh, for sleep because it does take some time. But actually, now maybe I should encourage him to keep doing that because that's a very good thing. So it could be good to have a type of bedtime ritual, not just for your kids. It could be good for us too. Taking a hot bath before bed can be helpful. And not actually because it warms you up, but actually because when you get out of the bath, you cool down and uh, your body temperature cools down. Uh, people actually, um, this is actually the next one, so I'll mention it there. So taking a hot bath can be helpful, but actually not because it makes you warm, because it actually helps you get cool. And that relates to number 10, which is dark bedroom cool bedroom, gadget-free bedroom. So, of course, dark, even having blackout curtains can be good. Cool bedroom, you actually probably need it to be cooler or to sleep better if it was cooler in your room than you would think. It actually is better to be a little bit cold to, to allow you to fall asleep and gadget-free so you're not watching TV or on your cell phone too much because those can be distracting and also the lights can be not good for you. Uh, number 11, having the right sunlight exposure, especially daylight from the sun. So you want to get out in the morning at least 30 minutes a day would be good. That helps your circadian rhythm get reset and allow you to have the proper wake wakefulness feeling and then get sleepy during the night. And the last one, number 12, don't lie in bed awake. So once it's been maybe 20 minutes or so, if you are trying to fall asleep and you can't get out of bed, don't do anything too um, exciting or stimulating, but get yourself ready uh, to go uh, back to sleep once you do feel that urge, go back into bed, but don't go back to bed before you feel that urge. So I, I highly recommend the book and I really just highly recommend that people take their sleep seriously. I know reading this book is going to make me prioritize it even more than I have at times and not take it lightly. Uh, I basically touched on a few points because there are so many, I say a few, throughout the book of the benefits of sleep and the harmful effects of not getting asleep, which almost all of us are not getting enough sleep. So if you think you can get by on just a few hours, you can't. You would be doing much better if you got more and you'd be much healthier if you were doing that too. So I hope we'll encourage ourselves and others to get more sleep, not take it as a last resort or something that we just do when we have nothing else to do. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.